Welcome to the Insider Outsider Podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders around the globe about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WMFDP and FDP Global specialize in helping insiders understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders, as well as outsiders, in partnering and building inclusive teams and organizations. I'm your host, Michael Welp, co-founder of the diversity and inclusion leadership development firm WMFDP and FDP Global, also a TEDx presenter and author of the book, Four Days to Change. Welcome to this episode of the Insider Outsider Podcast. We have four guests this week who are members of the Asian American Pacific Islander community. Na Vong Sandoval is a fierce and passionate social justice advocate for those seeking refuge and safety. She amplifies these issues and voices through education, advocacy, storytelling, and lobbying. She's a Vietnamese refugee where she and her family became boat people and displaced on refugee camps. Na is the Refugee Congress Delegate for Colorado, a founding member and public speaker with Colorado Refugee Speakers Bureau, and a Noble Ambassador for Christina Noble Children's Foundation. She is also giving a TEDx talk in the next month. June Davis is Japanese-American, born in Canada, raised in the U.S., mother of a beautiful brown boy, and wife of a wonderful black husband. She has been grappling with the injustice around us and striving to do her part to drive change now and for the next generation. She is currently Chief of Staff to the President in the U.S. Program Division at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Her previous professional experiences include roles at Target, Nike, Cargill, and Teach for America. John C. Yang currently serves as the Executive Director of Asian Americans Advancing Justice, a civil rights organization leading advocacy and litigation on issues including immigration, voting, consensus, affirmative action, and technology, and telecom. Past experiences include service in the Obama administration, Asian Pacific legal director based in Shanghai for a Fortune 200 U.S. company, and a partner in a D.C. law firm. Born in China, John was an undocumented immigrant for approximately nine years while in junior high and high school and got his path to citizenship because of the Bipartisan Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986. Peggy Nagy is Japanese-American, a recovering lawyer, a DEI senior consultant with WMFDP, and owner of her own consulting business. Her parents were incarcerated during World War II. Peggy was lead attorney for Men Yasui, who intentionally violated the curfew imposed upon Japanese Americans in World War II. She and her colleagues reopened his case in 1982 and had evidence that Men's incarceration was based on racial animus and not on military necessity. So welcome the four of you. I'm going to start with a really broad question. Really, you know, basically it's like, how is this whole year landing on you, all four of you? Um, you know, 220 has been quite an eventful year. It, you know, as a member of the Asian American Pacific Islander community, what are some ways that you've been most impacted by all these things this year, be it COVID-19 or the terms Kung Flu, Chinese virus, the murder of George Floyd, Black Lives protests, the election? 
gosh, President Trump's executive orders banning racial sensitivity training or critical race theory, a lot of that. A lot of that. Just a little tiny question to get it started. So um, anybody want to start just on what's, what's really most impacted you this year around any of that, or even as you feel it in this moment? I'm happy to get us started. Go ahead, June. Thank you. So I sometimes feel like I sit at this intersection. So I identify as Japanese American. My son, who's now 10, identifies as Black and Asian. But as he says in his own world, he feels like the world only sees him as Black. Um, so this like intersection, like the understanding the privilege that I have as an Asian person, although like in this time and in this year, right, that the anti-Asian racism has just escalated to the point where I'm just sort of reminded of that racism every day. Just the other day, a complete stranger leaned out of his truck to give me the finger as he drove by. I think for no other reason than what I look like. I'm now hearing things like ching chong, like when I walk down the street, like at a frequency that I haven't experienced since maybe high school many years ago. Um, but mm -hmm notwithstanding all of that, like, I know I can still, as an Asian person, do things and go places that I'd be terrified for my husband, who's Black, to go and do. So even when COVID um, first hit, and even now, you know, I would go to the grocery store, even though, you know, the anti-Asian racism would really flare up in the grocery store. But, you know, as a Black man wearing a mask, like, I'm not going to allow him to risk um, his physical safety doing that. Um, so just as the mother of a black boy, the wife of a black man, you know, I'm, I'm terrified for them. The murder of George Floyd has been really triggering for our family. Um, if I could just share a quick story. When my son was six, um, that's when Philando Castillo was killed. And we were living in Minnesota at the time. And so it felt like it, I mean, it happened in our community, like in our backyard, really. So my son had a lot of questions, right? Because it's on the news all the time, like everyone's talking about it. And so it led us to, ha to having the talk um, with him pretty early, um, planting the seeds of strategies of like how to stay safe and alive. And I remember it was maybe a couple of weeks after that, he came home from school and he said, mommy, you will be so proud of me. A police officer came to our school today and I smiled really big at her so she would feel really safe and comfortable around me. And that just broke my heart. Just the fact that black children and families like have to carry this weight and burden, it just feels unacceptable. And, you know, um, fast forward to last week, you know, my son came to me and said, like, I'm scared of police officers now. I don't want to die. I don't want to go to jail. I just know, like, I'm going to get unlucky someday and run into a bad police officer and something bad is going to happen. And, like, if you knew him, like, you'd know he's, like, the sweetest, kindest, most innocent kid. Everyone is like, oh, he's, like, the cutest. He's so adorable. And yet I know at 10 years old, he's, like, right on the cusp of going from being seen as cute to being seen as criminal, right? And so it took everything in me at that moment to like choke back my like fear and sadness and heartbreak and try to like be calm and, um, and talk again about the things that we're gonna do to keep him extra safe. You know, he's not gonna be running around with his friends at night playing with Nerf guns, you know, et cetera. Um, but, you know, just the fact that we have to teach our innocent kids the things that they have to do to stay safe in this world, um, 
it's been really hard. Um, so I just um, want to wrap up with maybe a reflection that I was having just in this year, um, just this idea of like getting our people or gathering up our people, just going back to George Floyd, um, you know, it was such a gut punch to see the Hmong officer standing by being complicit um, in the killing of George Floyd. And I have a real connection and affinity to the Hmong community. I started a Hmong focused charter school like 20 years ago. So I really feel that connection. And I know there was this impulse to like dissociate him from the Asian community. But the fact is like, I really believe like we have to own that and like think about the role that like we all play in holding up these like racist anti-black structures and systems and how we're working to change that and you know I know this year has been full of just reckoning in families and in the Asian community um, about like the role that we play and and the work that we need to do um, and so you know I think this has been a hard year but it's also been a year for like inspiration and action and change thank you for sharing all that your impact on yourself and your son and your husband so powerful um who's phil moves to share more next you know i'm happy to yeah. chime in as well yeah. um yeah. thanks for that question michael it's uh it's a small question you know because i know it had 14 <laughs> parts to it yeah. so thank you for making it easy for <laughs> us <Sure>. to uh, <laughs> digest um i i, I definitely understand and sympathize with what June had shared. And I think on so many different levels and in so many different ways, it speaks to the BIPOC community in general, uh, mm -hmm. however you identify. Um, for me, this year and probably the last three and a half years has been particularly trying and particularly jarring uh, as a refugee from Vietnam as a person who is very vocal about voicing the concerns of various communities because there is huge intersection to the BIPOC community and to see things such as um, very careless and very negative and very dangerous rhetoric being spewed by various offices particularly the highest office in the land having that become normalized in certain communities as something that um, should be part of the conversation versus something that even the World Health Organization had said back in, uh, I believe it's 2008, please call it by its scientific name, because it, there's a lot of harm associated with using the wrong words or scapegoating certain communities. and that really resonated with me because i've heard it before but to hear it during this time words do matter what you say and what you don't say matter it, it's just as important to speak out as it is to, to speak the truth and to dispel so much of what misinformation is going on right now but this year in particular um, i have seen the numbers of refugees being allowed into the United States dropped to historic lows. And every single year it has dropped to historic lows. Last year was at 18,000 just last week. It was determined a, a week and a half ago to 15,000. And we're usually right around 95,000 
that it, that the U.S. allows for, and with no particular groups uh, being preferential. But now it's extremely difficult, even though we're the most vetted human beings on the planet. I know this for a fact from my experience in working with Homeland Security that I wasn't vetted as much work, working in Homeland Security as I was as a refugee. So that's a little um, food for thought for those who continue to spew this misinformation. But it's extremely disheartening for me to also see that this continual um, cycle of scapegoating and racism, these aren't just ideas or ideologies. Every time this is out there in the community, it impacts real lives. It impacts real people. When we talk about 15,000 and 18,000 people that are accepted into the United States, we haven't even met that threshold every single year because of the barriers after barriers that are set for people. And in particular, communities that uh, people tend to overlook and I, I'm going to be very specific with my example in that the AAPI community aren't looked at when we think about undocumented, aren't looked at when we think about refugees, aren't, think, aren't thought of about racism. But yet, on the, since the onset of this country, uh, we have been at the forefront of having these actions, um, divisive actions applied toward us, whether it be excluded from the Naturalization Act with the Chinese Exclusion Act, to be interned in internment camps based upon the way we look or where we, where we originated from, even though Japanese Americans, the majority were US citizens. And the first hate crime based upon race was based upon the Vincent Chin case back in 82. So time and time again, American history has told us that even though it seems very far away, every single day that I watch the news or I see incidents of all of these, um, again, the rhetoric that's being used, the, the terminology being used, I don't think it's that far away. I think it's a recycled in a different way to make it more okay and acceptable for those who follow a certain base in order to other us and other groups. Because it's a scary thing to always hold the dominant power. It's a scary thing to be the one in control. And now, oh my goodness, someone wants to be equal to me. Someone wants to kind of be to where I'm at, where I'm making, where decisions are being made. And so it's a very interesting time. It's made it very clear to me that no matter how long Asians are here, we um, are still othered. Mm. Thank you. No. Right. From my perspective, I have the privilege of running, being the executive director of an Asian American civil rights organization. And so for me, part of it is my everyday work, so to speak, is addressing some of these issues. But I find June and uh, both of your stories just powerful because that's part of the reason that we do the work that we do. And, and there's this through line that, that both of you talked about between what we're seeing here in 2020 and the history of America. You know, America is a great country. I make no bones about that fact. You know, I'm an immigrant and I am proud to be here, but we also have difficult parts of our history. You know, when we talk about now the Chinese plague and, and Kung flu, I think back to the yellow peril and that's what led to the Chinese Exclusion Act. And the same words were being used, that the Chinese are diseased, that they bring, bring here plagues and different types of illnesses. 
And that's what we see now. You know, you talk about Vincent Chin in 1982. I, I, even as a civil rights leader, I always remind people, Vincent Chin was murdered because of a trade war, a trade war between the United States and Japan, where two out-of-work auto workers thought that he was Japanese and picked on him and murdered him. And right now we have a trade war, geopolitical disputes, real geopolitical disputes with, with China and the Chinese government. And I am so fearful that we will say, see that same moment where someone is actually murdered. We've already had physical violence against the Asian American community, but to have someone be murdered. But you know, what gives me hope is also, as I listen to these stories, is how we come together, is what I saw in the aftermath of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor was something different in the Asian American community. And this goes to something that June said is, look, we have to own up to the fact that we haven't always been great allies to the black community. We have not always been good allies to the Latino community. And I, it feels to me as I do this work that there is a different feeling. Some of the people that before kind of looked the other way or supported Peter Liang in the, in the New York case when he was a police officer doing the shooting have taken a different look. You know, some of it is because of the racism that they now encounter themselves because of COVID-19 that caused them to say, hey, wait a second, this is a little bit wrong, not a little bit wrong. This, this is not what I thought it was. So that gives me hope, you know, and the solidarity that I see from my sister and brother organizations, whether it's a legal defense fund, whether it's MALDEF, uh, that also, that solidarity, I think, gives me hope. Uh, with all that, that being said, uh, yeah, for 2020, I want a refund. I want to do over <laughs> because every day we knew this was going to be a difficult year. For me, it's, it was going to be a census year. It was going to be a voting year. So there was a lot of work to be done, but now to have all of this layered on top of it and the literally everyday news of something else that is being done to our collective communities, the othering of all of our communities is just maddening. And it really, we really have to rely on each other to find that bright light forward and, and to keep moving towards that light. Thanks, John. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, you, you all are so measured in your responses that I guess I can't swear and uh, stamp my feet and uh, really show you how friggin' angry I am. But I want you to know I am really angry uh, by, uh, by the fact that on May 25th, George Floyd was murdered. And by September 25th, the president had already issued one executive order saying that you can't use the words unconscious bias or you can't use critical race theory or you can't have that sort of diversity and uh, equity and education, ec education in the federal government agencies. Then it went to federal contractors. And we do a lot of work with federal contractors. And to have to say that in support of our clients, we, want to, we, we don't want to put them in jeopardy. But what that means is it's an abrogation of my First Amendment rights. It is infuriating to have to, to talk about this in ways that are disingenuous and not honest. Not that we're trying to do that, but when you say you can't use the word unconscious bias, or you can't use the word privilege, or you can't, you're not supposed to use the word white, and you can't make people feel uncomfortable, 
Well, I'm uncomfortable. This has been an uncomfortable year and a large part because of the race and the, and the racism uh, of this country. And, but they came slamming back in less than five months to say, if you think you're going to create a movement here, we're going to come slamming back with our version of white supremacy in all its facet, facets and all its undertones. Um, and so, yeah, I'm hopping mad about that. Um, I'm, I'm proud of the Asian American community because I think we've raised a generation of model minorities who believe in the model minority myth. And I think they're now seeing the yellow peril myth, you know, and that they need to see that. We need to see that. As John said, our status in this country is connected to our countries of ancestry and that and that relationship and their relationship with the US that we and in that way we are seen as perpetually foreign and this is yet another example of that perpetual foreignness that Asians as well as Latinos often face um, so I'm also happy and proud of all all the Asian American communities that stand beside and behind Black Lives Matter. We need to stand behind them and beside them. We do not need to be out in front of them. This is our time to be strong allies uh, with Black Lives Matter. And so, yeah, I'm hopping mad. Uh, and um, I'm happy to tell anyone about how mad I am. So that's been my year. Wow, thank you, Peggy. Any, anybody wanna share any more, any response hearing each other? Um, just give some space for that. One thing I wanted to connect to with respect to what Peggy said is it's fascinating to me, and, and this is me being intellectual as opposed to hopping mad, but that's sort of my go-to space, uh, is you know, people when coronavirus, COVID-19 first happened and we were calling out Chinese flu, Kung flu, a lot of people came up to this and come on, you're just being too sensitive. You're just not, you know, you're just into political correctness. And then I see what's happening in saying you can't talk about racial bias. You can't talk about whiteness. I'm thinking to myself, this is white fragility. You, know, you, you guys are doing the exact same thing. You're calling it out. And somehow it's okay for you to say that we're being too politically correct and for you guys not, you guys not to be able to take that yourself. So that, that's one piece that I get. And the other piece that I want to make sure we kind of name is that this model minority piece, right, that, that Peggy talked about, is that I, I want people to be clear. It's like it's a lot of times there are people that say, oh, you know, this is a good thing. This is a compliment for your community. No, it's not. It, it's not. I mean, it's a way of establishing a ceiling, number one, uh, as to, okay, these are the things you're good at, implying that you're not good at certain other things. And then number two is that's used as a wedge so that you, know, you guys are the good community, the good, good foreigners, and these are the bad people. And, and that's just something we cannot tolerate. You know, and we see that come up in affirmative action is that somehow Asian Americans uh, are, are why we should not have affirmative action. And I want to be clear about this is every time we've done polling on it, Asian Americans support affirmative action. It's about 70% in support, 16% opposed to it. I know there are some vocal Asian Americans that don't support it, but that's something we should be clear about is where we stand on these issues. This goes to Peggy's point is that we need to be an allyship 
And we need to demonstrate that rather than just, just simply sit on the sidelines. And John, could I? Oh, go ahead, Peggy. Well, I just want to say we've always had affirmative action in this country. It's just been affirmative action for white people and for white men in specific. And then, you know, we turn it on its head and say, this is bad for other people to have affirmative action. Okay, that's my comment. <laughs> um, and I was gonna build on your comments too, John, to say um, that, you know, kind of our liberation being bound up together, affirmative action, even in how it's conceived now, I think there's this misperception that it somehow like hurts Asians, like they're less likely to get admitted because of affirmative action. But I think I just read some recent data and studies that show that actually Asians do better when there are affirmative actions in place and they do worse when they're not. So there's all of this like myth busting that's needed that, um, that, that, that then can dismantle these artificial wedges that are, you know, that pit communities against each other when we're really like all, like our, our, our ability to thrive are all bound up together. And, and because I, ha I usually have an opinion about these sorts of topics, I'm gonna chime in as well. Uh, I definitely appreciate and agree with everything that Peggy, John, and June had shared. But I also want to um, reiterate this very interesting fact with model minority. You know, it, it, obviously it is built on the onset based on white supremacy in order to be divisive and to weaponize it against other BIPOC communities. But what's really interesting about that is it's only good to a certain degree because um, Asians are still, AAPI community are still not being promoted, not moved into these uh, positions, decision-making positions. So you're good, but you're, you're not that good. You know, you're not as good as us and we don't want you as good as us, but you're above the other ones, but you're not quite there. And it's this very subjective, um, it, it, it's a way of, I think it's, it's almost like a, uh, to me, it's a psychological, psychological colonization. That's how I feel about it, mm -hmm. is that it's a, to keep you in your place, to keep you and, and to distinguish you so that you know where you stand and that you always know that you don't stand all the way up here. Because if you stood all the way up here, you would be getting those roles. You would be, being, you would be in these leadership roles. And so obviously to me, that doesn't make, that makes absolutely, it's all nonsensical because it, it completely is a dichotomy to, to each other, to the, to the context in which it's trying to convey the message. And yet, at the end of the day, it makes absolutely no sense. But the only thing that makes sense in my mind is that it's a, it's a weapon of colonization and white supremacy at the end of the day. You're good, but you're still other, sort of. Uh, yeah. And an, wanna... an ex example of that was when Berkeley, the University of California at Berkeley, they were getting too many Asian applicants. And so what they wanted to do was to change the ratio between the math score and the English score on the SAT. They were going to flip them uh, and have the English score be higher than the math score. And there were a group of us that got together to fight that. And it took a group of Asian activists to fight that. But that is that... Uh, example of when we get too high when we get too close when we're when we're almost there 
because if we were on a level playing field, we would probably uh, outnumber whites in many, many situations. And that is not acceptable in, in this uh, culture. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to look about a specific uh, stereotype that is part of this ceiling, I think, that you're talking about, which is where AAPI folks are often seen as smart and good workers, but not necessarily good leaders. And so I'm wondering if you've experienced the upside and downside of this yourself or you've seen it, what have you done to overcome it in your journeys and what's been your experience watching it with other folks? And I'm curious too, if it's changing at all across generation too. Who wants to start us out on that topic that we can wade into for a bit? Well, I, Oh, no, go ahead, John. Thank you. You know, it's so prevalent. There's actually a book out. It's called uh, "The Bamboo Breaking the Bamboo Ceiling that's written by an Asian-American woman. And I read it, and I reflected upon it, and I thought, nothing's changed. <laughs> Nothing has changed since this book it has written. Because just like what we're seeing play, un- play and unfold right before our very eyes on TV every day, if you say something often enough, the mass public will believe it. it, it it's almost a, a self-fulfilling prophecy, except onto another group, which is us. And so if you say often enough, Asians are not good leaders, Asians are not good in management roles, Asians are not good in such and such, people listen and start believing it. Like the whole MSG myth, you know? It's like you say it often enough, and then, oh, no, I don't want MSG, when really there's no scientific proof to show that there is any detrimental harm um, to to consume this. And so I think it's been perpetuated for so long, people have accepted as the truth, just like with the word oriental. I mean, unless you're 150 years old, who really uses that term anymore? You know, let's demystify and let's quit using these words. And I, I think What's really going on uh, is is that people are hearing it and rehearing. It's a reoccurring theme. It becomes the truth, and it becomes the the uh, the motto and the object, kind of the mission in which in which industries and businesses and governmental agencies operate from, because that's the framework it was built on. So mm-hmm. now everything from that is going to be erroneous. If you start off with a bad uh, construct and you don't have the best uh, equipment or materials to build that, it's going to collapse eventually, right? Unless you have quality things that are sturdy, that are going to be a good foundation to build whatever it is. Um, that's why we're seeing what we're seeing. You know, it, it's starting to crumble. It's starting to collapse because it was not built on a sound and solid and fact-based uh, narrative to begin with. Mm-hmm. I'd actually be interested in asking all three of you as leaders how you address it, because especially with, with, with respect to Asian-American women, you have to toggle between the sort of being the, the, the docile Asian-American woman or the dragon lady, right? And, and this is also, we see this in the African-American community as well. But I just find that hard to navigate. And this is one place that I'll admit I do have some privilege that, yes, I have the Asian-American male stereotype of being, you know, not enough of a leader, but it's still a little bit different. So I, I'd be curious how you guys have navigated that in your careers. Yeah. Go ahead, Jim. Okay. Um, so 
Um, I'll give one example, which is around communication. Um, so, you know, I was raised with cultural values around like listening, being deferential to authority, not speaking unless spoken to. And when you do speak, you do it humbly, you downplay what you have to offer, you know, you put qualifiers like this probably isn't right, or you've probably already thought about this. It's like the worst thing that could happen is you come across as like arrogant or full of yourself or something, right? Like that would be a violation of cultural values. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that really ref- got reflected in like how I communicated and how I came across and reflecting back, I think in high school and college combined, I could probably count on one hand the number of times I proactively raised my hand or tried to insert my voice proactively into something. So when I got to the professional world, you can imagine I got a ton of feedback around speak up more, be more assertive, etc. And I worked really hard to do all of those things. And then one day, you know, probably middle to, of my career during my time at Teach for America, I was having a get to know you chat with an Asian colleague. And in the course of the conversation, she made me realize that I'd been internalizing all of these dominant culture values and letting them sort of make me feel diminished. So I made a commitment right then and there, and I've kept to it in the years since, to do things like I'm no longer going to put speak up more as a professional development goal in my performance reviews. Um, I can still strive to be more effective in my communication, but I'm going to do that in a way that's grounded in my values, that leans into who I am, and the power that comes from my cultural values, even when it is sometimes at odds with the dominant culture around me. So, for example, in my current role at the foundation, I get feedback all the time now. I've I've been there less than a year, but I already get tons of feedback about how people appreciate how how countercultural I am to the foundation. I'm not sure what that means about my long-term success there, but, um, but I, but, you know, I'll do things like name that I'm an internal processor. So, you know, I probably don't have a fully formed thought now. I'll come, I'll I'll probably come back in 10 minutes or tomorrow, but here's my quick thoughts or I'm an internal processor. So, you know, in case you're like me, here's some materials in advance. I do it so often that I think now people, like I don't realize I'm doing it, but people will reach out to me and say how much they appreciate that I do that because it's making space for others too. So, you know, in terms of like how I navigate that, I really, I try and stay true to who I am, but recognize that the values around me are definitely shaped by white dominant culture. And so I do need to figure out how to be as effective as I can be without losing um, who I am. And so in the naming, in the, in the stances I can take around performance management, et cetera, uh, I, you know, I, you know, that's kind of where I, um, where I aim to find that balance. And the last thing that I would say is, you know, folks know that I kind of have this soapbox topic about just how often organizations have this single leadership archetype and Peggy's heard me go off on this rant many times. Um, but you know, many times organizations have a very clear, narrow view of what a leader looks like, acts like, talks like, walks like. And there's so much danger and risk in that, right? Like thinking about how much organizations miss out on the breadth of talent and views and perspectives and how hard it is for folks who don't fit that mold to see themselves as having a path in the organization. And so wherever I am, I'm talking about that because unless we can name these things, it's really hard to grapple with and dismantle those things. And so by 
giving people the language to say, how do we cultivate multiple leadership archetypes? Like, how can we embrace leaders who lead from behind, who lead collaboratively, who communicate differently, who, you know, engage and orient in different ways? Um, so I try to find little rebellions like that. I love those. I love those little rebellions, June. Uh, you know, there've been lots of articles that said that in in the COVID crisis, the leadership skills that are needed are more women or feminine based leadership skills, um, and that I think some of those skills are the same skills that Asian Americans have. Uh, but they're they're defining it as in this time of crisis. So I wonder. Okay, when we're not in this crisis, are we going to go back to that male, white male model of, of leadership? And when I was growing up, there are lots of articles that say that leaders are born and not made. Uh, and, and that also was uh, a stereotype. I remember, you know, I went to law school and I decided I would do the hardest thing that I could do. Uh, and that was to be a litigator, to, uh, to show that I could speak, you know, because I was shy and I didn't say much and blah, blah, blah. Little did I realize I was a closet extrovert all those years. And so when I hit my stride, I really hit my stride. And so I've been called arrogant. I've been called a bitch. I've been called lots of different things as I say and speak whatever, you know, what I believe to be my truth. So I think that that is, you know, on either side of that, that's hard, but I'd rather be on this side than the other side of, of feeling like I am subservient and compliant. But I've seen in many organizations that I've worked with that Asians are not in the top positions. They, they are overly educated for their positions. And if there are a lot of Asians in an organization, like I'm thinking in the Bay Area or other places, people will actually say that we don't have a diversity issue here. Or Asians will say, we don't have a diversity issue here because look at all of us here. But I would say to them, analyze who's at the top. Look at your education versus other people who are at the top. And you have got to see that we are overly educated and underly uh, performance valued so that the, that the places that we have are not uh, commensurate with our level of education. And, you know, I've talked to um, groups of students, law students, you know, undergraduate students, especially at this time, and I realized that they're still quiet. You know, that there are, there are, is it, I, I just assume that, you know, they would be, and, and maybe they are. So then I, I went about calling on them. And when I called on them, especially in a virtual world, right, you can see their names, you start calling on them. They have a lot to say. You know, they have a lot to say. They're smart. They're reflective. They're all these things. And, you know, if there was one wish, I would wish that A, people would realize that, B, people would call on them and see that they would feel that they have the right to stand up and say what they feel. Um, and so I hope we're not perpetuating another generation of either exotic erotic or dragon lady or whatever else you called it, John. So let's hear from John about Asian men. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I, I think 
on one level, I do feel like I operate a little bit from a place of privilege, uh, because both as a male and as an East Asian male, because again, sort of if we want to really make sure we have the nuances correct, that gives me a different status, so to speak, uh, than if you come from Southeast Asia, if you're South Asian, you know, there are these issues about the color of your skin that are real, that I think we, we have to, again, I appreciate what everyone is saying. We have to name these things, right? Uh, so that does live with me, and I try to be conscious of that. I agree with the stereotype. Certainly, I, like you, Peggy, I grew up as a litigator when I was a lawyer. And I did have a couple of occasions where the partner that I work with said, well, I'm not sure you're going to be cut out for litigation. You don't seem assertive enough. And anyone that's really met me, I do think I'm polite or I try to be, I try to be well-mannered. But I don't think I've ever suffered from being shy in any real sense. Introverted, perhaps, but not shy. Uh, And certainly I don't attribute that to discrimination or in the intentional sense, but it goes to exactly what you guys have been saying is this bias, this notion of bias. Uh, And that's why sort of talking about implicit bias and having that sort of training is so critical, I think. the, the other thing that does strike to me, I, I think we were talking also about well, how do you, what, what do you do with all of this? Mm-hmm. And I do admit, I am very, very conscious of the fact that in any sort of public meeting, especially a meeting, if I'm the only Asian American, and let's face it, in many of our spaces we are, I do make a point of speaking up. I do uh, because I feel like I'm not representing my community well if I end up being in the background. And part of that, though, is that like, look, there's a reason that we're there. You know, it's uh, where we, we have good thoughts uh, and we should make sure that we articulate them. So uh, that's what goes through my mind uh, around some of this, uh, just being mindful of where I am, where I sit, uh, some of the privileges that I have. And I'll admit, sometimes I do use them to my advantage. Uh, but, you know, that's part of the world we live in. And, and that's OK. Mm. Thank so you. My- so, yeah. so, so Michael, can I add to this? And I yeah. really appreciate John mm-hmm. um, uh, basically yielding the floor to the ladies. I appreciate that. That's uh, something that does not happen to us historically or currently uh, very often. So I appreciate that. Um, but to, to a couple of points that have been made, uh, it's with, to Peggy's point about being overqualified and overeducated and under um, uh, underutilized in your profession in whatever capacity. I definitely see a truth to that. I have two examples of that. The first one was I remember in a previous situation where uh, there we were uh, there are a couple candidates up for promotion that we could apply for this particular promotion, and I was one of the uh, the finalists, um, the only person of color, and one of the candidates' buddies came into my office. And knowing that I had an advanced degree and knowing that this position did not require an advanced degree, it only required a bachelor's degree, said to me, "Um, you know, you don't need a master's degree to apply for this position. So it should go to someone who, um, you know, uh, it's more suited to. And I said, and my response was, you mean your friend that had the blockbuster video experience before they came into that position, that kind of experience? (laughs) You know, because it was so patronizing. It was so patronizing and deluding 
our talents and our education and our worth. And that was very degrading, you know, or there was another situation where um, in the same office, by the way, <laughs> I'm no longer there. Mm in the same office where we had different units and sections and I was interested in moving into a, uh, a particular section, a unit. And I had heard through the grapevine that that supervisor of that section said, yeah, I don't think now would be a good fit in there. Well, I have read the reports of those people in that unit and you would think they have English as a second language and not me. So I was really, bewildered by this comment, you know, and, and I had written in grad school, I had written pretty much my entire career, and uh, I knew what it boiled down to. It was that whole mentality of that we don't belong in certain spaces. We don't belong because that would mean that there's a possibility I could move up even more, and God forbid I move up into that space. We don't want that now. And then there was a um, there, there was a couple of points that were made too that I thought were interesting. Uh, June had mentioned about your voice and being in that cultural space of uh, being discouraged to speak up. I think I had a bit of a, a different experience, although it was cultural for me to stay in my lane, keep my head down, just work hard type of thing. Man, when I got into college, I had some phenomenal mentors. I had this indigenous uh, professor who um, I, I still keep in contact to this day, and he was badass. Let's just put it that way. He opened my world up to colonization, white supremacy. I looked at Mount Rushmore with complete disgust after that. You know, I looked at certain things, and, and then I had other professors who really, truly shifted my lens from what I had been seeing all along, what people expected me to see. And from that point on, I'm with John. Anytime I am the only one, especially when I'm the only one, you'll hear me. Whether you like it or not, you're going to hear from me. And I think for people who are non-BIPOC, it's very jarring because you have this refugee woman, right? who is doing social justice advocacy, who spoke against the ICE director, Tony Pham, who spoke against, you know, kids in cages, who spoke against uh, all of these issues. And, uh, and now suddenly they can't leave because they're in the, 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 you know, they're in this meeting room, they're in this conference room and they can't leave. They have to hear this. And so I think um, it's about damn time. It's about damn time we speak up. We need to, we need to continue. And I'm so proud of this next generation that realizes how important that is and to work alongside with other BIPOC communities. Agreed. Could I add one more thought on this topic and others may have others too. Um, I, I also am inspired by this like next generation and the fire that they bring and to know how like deeply ingrained in structures and institutions um, that the, the bias and the unlevel playing field, um, like how deeply rooted in those systems they are. And so it feels like it's a combination of like all our rebellions in all these different ways and like tackling these structures. And it just, it made me think of an example. I was at a very large global uh, company um, and they were rolling out new leadership expectations for the entire you know, 150,000 person organization. And 
um, I think their aim was to be transparent about rubrics around leadership expectations, et cetera. Um, but, and I was new there and I, I read it. Wow. It's super grounded in Western values. You know, it's about like verbal expression and quick individual decisive action. And, you know, basically like pulling yourself up at your bootstraps and, um, and, uh, and and really not a lot of room for other other cultural orientations or styles. And this was a global company across 70 countries. And so I flagged some concerns, even though they're about to launch it like the next week. And they're like, oh, no, 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 don't worry. It's already been reviewed by, by senior leaders across the globe. I'm like, okay, great. But like those senior leaders in other countries, were they white men? Because we often place like expats in these global countries. They're like, oh. We did not catch that. So basically everyone who reviewed it was a white man. And so it's not surprising, right, that the leadership expectations were like very grounded in these like white German cultural values. And, you know, we were able to like influence some things on the margin. But then you imagine like what happens when it becomes systematized like that, right? Then performance evaluations are based on this criteria and it all feels very like fair and systematic, but really like that bias has already been really ingrained in the system. And so um, it just feels like the fight has to be fought on many fronts. I'm so sorry. I have one more thing to add because this is very pertinent and I need to get this out of my system. (laughs) So so I had spoken on a panel and it consisted of refugee women from all around the world. We had a Bosnian woman, one from Somalia, one from Syria and myself. And it was for the film screening for MIA, you know, the singer, the rapper. Oh gosh, she is, yeah, she is powerful. And afterwards we had a Q and A and the audience was shoot, were shooting questions at us and we had a, we had a great time. All the women, all, every single uh, of the panelists did a phenomenal job. They were just powerful. And then afterwards, as we were leaving, uh, a couple of the attendees had approached us and what I had a male approach me and he said, now you were so on point with this 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 and i said you know why because i've been waiting all my life to say these things because it's always somebody else it's always another gender i have i have these thoughts in my mind and i Mm. you know i think a lot of women particularly women of color feel this way we have been suppressed and we have been uh told to not speak up so when we do better listen because we have a lot of things to say that we've been waiting to get off our chest and um, they're all relevant to the world right now. So I, I, I just had to share that. It's all powerful. Thank you. I'm, I'm enjoying this. I could just listen to you all for a couple more hours. I think <laughs> we're probably, we, we got another 15 minutes or so to get in, to an hour. Or we can go there or go a little bit longer if we want. But I'm wondering what, and what advice have you, what else have you heard as advice for you to be successful as AAPI members? And and there's other folks listening to this podcast that are not in the AAPI community. What, what do you want from them as partners or allies or what, what, what would you feel like they should think of? I, I think it's obvious to dispel some of these myths in themselves, in ourselves and check our unconscious bias, but what else would it look like? What do you want from those other colleagues? For me, I always think about making sure that we listen to the silent voices. 
Uh, and that's so true in the Asian community. All of us just talked about the fact that we feel like there's always these dominant cultures that are talking and then we have the certain place, right? So for if, especially if you belong to one of these dominant cultures, make sure that you're listening for that voice that isn't yet speaking. Uh, and, and you see this in the media. You, know, you see it when we talk about immigration. Rightfully, there is a large uh, magnifying glass on the Latino community because certainly there's a, immigration involves the Latino community. But we have to remember when we talk about undocumented immigrants, there are about 1.8 million Asian immigrants that are undocumented. Right? When we talk about DACA, DACA uh, and DREAMers, there's probably about 130,000 DREAMers that are Asian. So making sure that that lens is included. You know, it, 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 with Black Lives Matter and racial justice, absolutely, we have to center on Black Lives Matter. That's the dominant issue. There's no question about that. But the, there is a sub-narrative that we should remember on the racism that Asian Americans are feeling right now as well. And, and that that's all part of the same structural problem, too. I mean, that's the beauty of it is that we're not in tension with each other. When we talk about these multiple lenses, we're not in tension with each other. If anything, by doing so, we amplify that voice that we're dealing with xenophobia, anti-foreignness when we're talking about immigration, that we're dealing with structural racism when we're talking about these different strands that, that, that we have. So I, those are the things I would ask people to think about. Uh, certainly then for the Asian community, for those that are listening that are from the Asian com community, although this applies to everyone, is you know to have a friend, friend you have to be a friend, right? And, and what that means is we also need to know when to step forward and when to step back. Is uh, during this moment of Black Lives Matter, I do think that many Asian Americans have stepped forward in a very good way, a very positive way, and kind of recognize their own anti-blackness. But I've also seen stories about how Asian Americans are being critical of the fact that, well, where was this attention for us when uh, there was anti-Asian racism? And I just think that that misses a little bit. I'm not saying that the anti-Asian racism isn't real. It is. But don't make it about us versus them. Don't make it about because we're talking about them, that doesn't mean that we don't care about us, right? It, it, there's more than that. Again, it goes to that amplification rather than that, that tension, that, that, you know, uh, that us-them dichotomy, that binary model that sometimes we get into. And if we can lift up beyond that, then we're going to be in a much better space. Thank you. Um, I had some thoughts about the first part of your question, Michael, around advice. Mm -hmm. um, relating to being AAPI and or being a leader at large. And I'm thinking about just AAPI as an umbrella term encompasses so much rich diversity, even within that community that can sometimes get lost when it's seen as this monolith, right? And, and it made me think back to our, the earlier part of our conversation, even, you know, around affirmative action, et cetera that there can be this um, stereotype of a certain type of Asian, but there's so much diversity within that. I think about the Hmong community that I you know, felt, I feel a real affinity and connection to, and just the, the disparities around like education and opportunity, et cetera, that they face or um, many other subgroups within that AAPI umbrella. And so there's no, there's no one way to be an AAPI person or a leader. And so the 
advice, collective advice that I've gotten over the course of my life and career, I think is really about really trying to hone in on who you really are, right? And not feeling like you need to fit a certain box or a certain mold. Um, stay true to who you are and who you are is going to be both connected to your community, but also different from others in your community. And that's okay. So for me, I think advice as a leader is always being really clear about your values. So for me right now, I'm staying really grounded in my belief in people and human potential. And so as a manager, for example, that drives me to really give people the opportunity to develop and grow and stretch, to bring in a range of voices and perspectives to get to the best ideas and outcomes, to push power as low and deep um, and closest to the ground as possible. I believe in being in service to others, believe in transparency and vulnerability as the way to build trust and really staying grounded think, in those values as a leader. And then just really quickly in the second part of your question, I echo a lot of the sentiments that John talked about um, that a principle that I heard many years ago that always stayed with me is thinking about um, how do you keep power closest to the pain, right? So how do you really um, um, partner with communities in ways that's not imposing what you think is right, what you value, et cetera, but really, really uh, amplifying and lifting up their voice, their actions. It really is about that collective action and creating the space for them to really lead the way and for partners to get educated, to listen, to amplify, to notice who's in the conversation and who's not. Um, so I guess the advice on folks wanting to partner with AAPI, I think that the advice is similar to anyone seeking to stand in solidarity with, with any community right now. And, and I'm heartened by all the efforts I'm seeing about the AAPI community really striving to stand in solidarity with the Black community right now. So, so Michael, um, if I could respond to that, I, I have a couple of thoughts, but I want to open it up with, by plagiarizing a quote that I really love uh, by a Vietnamese author. And as far as the whole uh, model minority myth, he said a quote, and I'll always remember, I just thought it was so clever. And he said, uh, we as refugees and immigrants or AAPI should have the same right as any other group to be mediocre if we want to. And I just thought, yes, <laughs> yes. Why is it that certain groups are being weaponized and, and used as a, a tool against other groups to be even more divisive? And then uh, to, your, to answer this, uh, the other portion of your question with regard to how can non-AAPI partner with us? Well, I think there is a misconception, a historical misconception that any time that you partner with us, that uh, you have to lead when that's not the case. I mean, it's very disingenuous of me to want to lead a movement for tall people, being that I'm only 5'2". I can read books about it. I can read movies about it, documentaries. I can talk to a million tall people. I can have worked in an organization where I advocate for tall people, but I'll be damned if I ever understood about having my head hit the door or pants that aren't long enough. I'll, I will never understand. And I think that's the huge misconception when people have good intentions or maybe not good intentions to partner with us. 
because they still don't see us in that leadership role. They see us as an auxiliary role, a supplemental role, an additional role as the help, you know, in however sense of the word you want to interpret that as. You know, we're always the, the secondary or the peripheral. And so I think that paradigm shift needs to happen because, again, I cannot lead a movement for tall people. Never. It would be hypocritical, disingenuous, and just completely hilarious, I think, you know, to, to think that I would ever understand that mentality or the struggles of a tall person. And so I think that needs to be done for non-BIPOC communities, non-Asian communities. And for the Asian community, um, of course, it should not be a contest on who's suffering the most. This is not a suffering Olympic. Who, who, you know, who has it the worst? We can go on for days. I can tell my refugee story. They can tell me their tall story. You know, we could go on for days, whatever it is. But I think I, what I, and I, I really appreciate what June had said too about um, supporting what the causes are because there are so many in, intersectionalities to what is going, what's going on right now. Um, but I also see that with the Black Lives Movement, what's going on that I don't appreciate is that people who are not Black hijacking the movement and taking away from what their mission and purpose is and diluting what it is or not even thinking about why the movement is ex is existing and really framing it back to that old colonized framework of um, how can I make it work for me? And so I think those are some of the things to keep in mind, but for, for AAPI and Asian folks and particularly leaders, leading means leading, not sitting in the back and, and giving, been, been giving a token slot because that's what people are comfortable with. Leading in every sense of the word means stepping up, doing the right thing, holding people accountable, ensuring that not only our voices are represented, but that we're actually moving the, the needle to making these changes. Awesome. I just have a few things to say, Michael. I think one is that um, I had a, a white person t say to me that white people see Asians as white. And uh, uh, she's a diversity and inclusion consultant, so that was pretty stunning for, for me to hear that said. Uh, and on the other hand, I think that we as Asians sometimes, sometimes think that we're almost white, you know, in the, in the need to be accepted, in the need to feel like we're good enough, that we sell in our, our way, we sell ourselves short because the model or the example of greatness or, or goodness is, is, is not doesn't have to be a white model. I mean, that's what we have been socialized to believe. Uh, but we need to break out of that and say that that is uh, that is what has confined us in a way, our spirit and our and our lives and and how we view the world. I remember I had a African-American mentor, and I asked him, should I take this job at the University of Oregon as a law school's assistant dean? And, and he said, and I'm going to swear, and he said, yes, but you know, you really need to keep close ties to the community. Because if you keep close ties to the Asian-American community, then you can tell them to F off at any time. 
But if you don't keep those close ties, if you forget who you are, then they have you. They've got you. They, you will be in handcuffs in a way because you'll be beholding to their, their standard of what is good and, and right. And so I guess I would wish for all of us in the Asian American community to know that we are strong and smart and capable and we are leaders. All we need to do is step forward and say that. So let us learn to step forward and say that. Even, you know, when I started speaking out, believe it or not, I didn't used to speak out, but it was hard. And it was, I forced myself to speak at every meeting I was in, in the first five minutes. Otherwise, I'd spend the whole meeting not saying anything. So I know we can do that. And I know the younger generation has that spirit and has that. And I think for, for white people, you know, for the dominant culture is if you don't know how to collaborate, then we are, we are here to take over because we will do what we need to do to find justice and equity in this country. And you can be with us and you can be collaborative and you can be with us in comrades in arms, or you can just move aside because we are coming forward and going down the middle. That's all I have to say. Thanks, Peggy. So anything else anybody wants to share in our last few minutes? I've been watching you be inspired by each other. It's been a joy. Well, I just want to say that whoever selected this panel of speakers, uh, I really have to give them major props because they just powerful and just the lived experiences. I just, I absolutely respect all of you and I absolutely appreciate all the work you're doing. And I'm so proud when I hear collective voices come together and just what you bring for all of us, not just the AAPI community, but BIPOC communities and the community at large. I'm just so proud of everything that all of you have said and done. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Anybody else? Yeah, I'm inspired. And I think what I get inspired by also just listening to this is the difference in voices, right? And this is maybe the last thing that I would want to emphasize to people is, and I, June mentioned this at the outset, is find your own voice, but make sure to use that voice. Uh, don't stay silent in the background. And there's so many different ways to use that voice, large and small, you know. Uh, like I said, sort of I do it at, uh, at an organizational level because of the organization I'm at. But that's not the only way to do it. Uh, certainly for the, uh, the people that are of the younger generation that have just graduated from college, think about all the different ways you can contribute to the community. You know, a lot of times I talk to students that are interested in public service and they feel like they're selling out if they go to a corporation. And I say to them, no, that's not right at all. You know, if you stay true to your values, and that's something that all of you said as well, if you stay true to your values, you'll find a way to contribute to, to the community regardless of the platform you have, just stay true. And we need you in all of those different platforms because without that, we can't move together. Thank you. 
And I just have to plus one um, both uh, Na and uh, John's comments. I and mean, this has really just filled my cup in important ways that I didn't even realize I needed the cup filling. So thank you for that. And, you know, John, what you were saying really resonates. Something that we're talking about uh, a fair amount internally is we all have a role to play in this fight, in this journey, right? And find yours. You know, it's it may be different for each of us. And John, like you were saying, like on face value, you might feel a calling over here, but worry like, oh, but does it not look like it's really, but if you find the meaning and the potential and the opportunity and you are going to go make the most of it and it is going to collectively keep us moving forward, that may be the role that you need to be playing right now. And so I encourage everyone to to, to really listen to that inner voice and figure out what is that role for you to play, stretch outside of the bounds of what's comfortable for you. Um, and together, I really do believe we can really make change happen. And it's, it's uh, critical more now than ever. I think my colleagues have said it all. So I just want to really thank each of you for the work that you're doing individually. Uh, and for the difference that you're making with people where you are, but I'm hoping all over the country that this podcast will be heard by other people and shared by, uh, with other people. So I really thank you for your contribution, your leadership, your vision, your commitment, and your greatness. Well said, Peggy. Thank you, Jun, Na, John, and you, Peggy, too. It's been inspiring to hear and be with you. And I'm just grateful for your time. Um, and Peggy also for coordinating, um, pulling this group together. So blessings to all of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Insider Outsider podcast, where we have courageous conversations with business leaders about what it means to be an insider or an outsider in their organizations. We at WFTP and FTP Global specialize in getting insiders to understand their unique responsibility to engage other insiders as well as outsiders in building inclusive teams and organizations. Our work takes us around the globe, transforming people and companies towards a more inclusive world. For the show notes about this podcast and more about the work of WMFTP and FTP Global, visit wmfdp.com slash podcast.